8.34. Now follow me on this, okay? This is, this is Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. But this isn't Jeff Wagner's time slot. You may be saying to yourself, well, you're right, because Jeff isn't here anyway, but I'm filling in for him now because Steve Scafidi will be out at Miller Park. Ah, oh, that's Steve. I'll tell you what, he's a trooper. I mean, he's willing to make a sacrifice for the team, leave the safe confines of the studio for hostile Miller Park. Oh, that's just a touch of envy that you're, <laughs> that you're hearing there. It's finally here. It's Friday. Game one. Exciting stuff. And uh, we are actually going to be talking uh, about the Brewers quite a bit. Now, there's just a gazillion things to talk about today. We'll get to as many as we possibly can. We are going to get to the, I don't know, is it the big story of the day? It's the buzzy story of the day. That's Shorewood High canceling a production of To Kill a Mockingbird. This is, uh, there are a lot of elements to that story. It is because the production was going to use the N-word. But boy, there are a lot of periphery topics. We'll get to that in just a minute, but I actually am going to start with a couple of things about the Milwaukee Brewers. Of course, game one of the NLCS tonight at Miller Park. Two things I want to talk about. One is, right now, is the Wisconsin fan base more into the Brewers than the Packers? That, in just a moment. First, this. Okay, so I, my regular show prep does involve the Wall Street Journal. And uh, they have, in the print edition, they have a sports section, if you didn't know that, matchup of baseball's hottest teams. And this is their preview of the NLCS. And actually, just to show you how omnipresent this is these days, this is one of the better ones that I've seen. What do you do when you have a matchup, they ask, between the league's best team and the most talented team? Now, if you don't know which is which, they are referring to the Brewers as the NL's best, the Dodgers as the most talented. Any true blue Brewer fan may say, well, hey, wait a minute, we're the the most talented team. We have the most wins. Well, you know it doesn't always work that way. And in fact, the Brewers are certainly the hottest team, uh, one of the hottest. Uh, The Dodgers, uh, you know, they did what they had to do down the stretch as well. The Brewers, of course, won those 11 in a row since, you know, through the playoffs, uh, sweeping the Rockies. But what they are talking about is when you look at the statistics, you would think the Dodgers would have somewhere between 105 and 110 wins. I'm completely serious about that. They don't. They got 92 is what they finished the regular season with, and they, of course, had to go through the tiebreaker as well. In fact, they led the National League in most runs scored and fewest uh, runs allowed. So what that is called is the run differential, the number of runs they scored versus the number of runs they allowed, 194. The Brewers' run differential, 95, which is actually a lot healthier. There was, even late in the season, that was in the mid-30s for the Brewers. So they, you know, they... You have seen that improvement down the stretch, which makes sense with that with the hot streak that they had. But they're still not, or really haven't been a scoring machine. And <laughs> with that bullpen, it didn't really matter. I mean, they got timely hits. Yelich, for all the MVP talk, 
that the timeliness of his hits, or you know, as much as the statistics themselves. So this is a pretty classic matchup. You have a red-hot team, which when you look at statistically, the Dodgers did, they didn't churn out the wins that they should have churned out with the offensive production and the pitching that they got. So it makes it uh, really a, a fascinating matchup. Now, I, producer Jordan and I were talking off there a couple of minutes. I, you know, we're both optimistic. Sometimes it is getting hot at the right time, and it doesn't matter the sport. You saw that with the 2010 Packers, and they they were actually the Super Bowl favorites early in that year. Then they didn't look anything like it in the middle of the season, and got hot when it mattered. Just got into the playoffs. And then their defense really played well. What you would, you know, you look at even against the Rockies, lots of squandered opportunities. I mean, really lots. That's sort of the run differential. I, I, I don't know, you know, as a season stranded on base, I, I don't know what their numbers are. But, boy, you sure saw that in the Rockies series. And I, I don't think that will get it done. I don't know why I would do something so silly as to predict this. But I think they are going to be Clayton Kershaw. I just, I, I, I don't know. It just has that 2010 Packer feel to me. I could be totally, totally all wet on that. Speaking, speaking of the Packers, in a couple of minutes I want to talk about that. Who's number one in the hearts of sports fans right now? Don't worry, we've got a lot of newsy stuff, including who's the real education governor, uh, the Shorewood story that I mentioned, and a lot more. But we'll just spend a few minutes on that coming up, and then we'll get to who was the real education governor. 840 News Radio WTMJ. WTMJ Radio presents the hometown call at Turner Hall on Monday. The free, yes, free event will feature a massive movie screen broadcast at Turner Hall Ballroom. Game three, the NLCS between the Milwaukee Brewers and the Dodgers. Sync to the voice you just heard, Hall of Famer Bob Euchre's play-by-play broadcast on WTMJ Radio and the Associated Bank Brewers Radio Network. Uh, yeah, that was free. Nothing wrong with your radio. Completely free. That's what I said. Doors open at 5.30. Which leads me to this. I won't be there. I'll be at Lambeau Field. And i got to tell you, I mean, you know, obviously that's game three. And I, I couldn't attend it even if I had a ticket because I would need a plane ticket as well. But between that, now I am as diehard a Packers fan as you'll find. I don't live far from Lambeau Field up in Green Bay. Right now, and, and I'm sure it's part of it because the Packers are underperforming. I am totally just into the Brewers way more than the Packers. And my thought was, when uh, the folks here, when we got this uh, information to share about the event at Turner Hall, my thought is, where would I rather be? Oh, come on, you'd rather be at Lambeau Field. Well, let me say this. You know what, my first thought when I, I actually, this is true, I forgot that I, I was going to the Packers game. And when I remembered that, I'm thinking, well, I hope they're going to show the score, the Brewers' score, often at Lambeau Field. I would think that they would. And besides, they have really upped the Wi-Fi at Lambeau, and my phone works very well there now. So I, you know, I can keep the score that way. But I, 
I will tell you, living in northern Wisconsin, and I mentioned this on the air earlier this week, the you know in Milwaukee, here in Milwaukee, you can you know, yes, everyone is brewers crazy, or most everyone is. You would really though, you, you have to get out state to get the sense. I have, I remember 2011, and I and I just think this is much bigger than that, in terms of the way the fan base, out state as I call it, or up north as it's affectionately called, is just really dialed in. All right, I will actually restrain myself and take a break from talking about the Milwaukee Brewers because interesting piece in today's Wall Street Journal. Actually, Craig Gilbert and Molly Beck in the Journal Sentinel posted uh, a story uh, it posted early this morning. Education is the one issue both Scott Walker and Tony Evers are hitting hard in their campaign ads. And the point of the story is that uh, it's the only issue, there are a number of other issues that one is talking about or the other is talking about, but education is the one they're both hammering. Now, Governor Scott Walker apparently sensing early on Tony Evers, Superintendent of the Department of Public Instruction, was going to win the primary. Walker said, hey, I'm the, I'm the education governor. And that drew scorn and ridicule from the left. Oh, now he's Mr. Education Governor, after gutting this and gutting that and so on. And, of course, Evers wants to stay claim that he would be the Education Governor because of his you know, lifelong, adult lifelong, education background. A couple of weeks ago, I had the chance to interview Governor Walker, and I asked him. I said, all right, Democrats are trying to make this a deathbed, if you will, conversion on your part, that now suddenly, because you're in a very competitive re-election bid, now you're the education governor. And he made, he said, look, I became the education governor when Act 10 got done. And that, I mean, you say that to anyone who doesn't like the governor, doesn't agree with his politics, or anyone on the left, or education, oh, come on. That doesn't make you the education governor. In fact, that's how you damaged education. And now you want to be the education governor. And, and the governor makes it very clear, no, Act 10 makes me the education governor because of its success. There is a piece in today's Wall Street Journal that builds on that, and I want to share it with you. It's not very long. Governor Scott Walker's collective bargaining reforms have saved Wisconsin from becoming a fiscal basket case like Illinois, and a new study suggests they are improving student learning, too. The governor's biggest achievement in eight years in office has been curbing the power of government unions by limiting collective bargaining to wages and requiring public employees to contribute more to their pensions and health care. Superintendents could also attract better teachers by paying for performance. Mary Bell, president of the Wisconsin Education Association Council Teachers Union, declared at the time that Mr. Walker has taken an axe to our public schools. Let me interrupt them briefly. They still, they still say that. And that the reforms would result in the destruction of public service and public education in this state. But public schools and student performance 
are better now because of reforms, according to a new study by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, and you may have heard about this. It was pretty good talk radio fodder when Will released it. The study examined state math scores before and after the reforms were implemented. Reading scores weren't considered because the state changed language arts tests after the reforms took effect. So just so you know the methodology they used. Math proficiency increased by an average of 2.1% across school district after districts implemented the reforms. Improvements were found in the state's small town, rural, and suburban districts. But curiously, scores in urban schools didn't budge. One reason may be that administrators in Madison and Milwaukee resisted the reforms and may not have taken advantage of their new powers. This theory is supported by a study last year by Yale economist Barbara Biasi that found high-quality teachers, that is, those who improve students' learning most, tended to move to districts where teachers could negotiate their pay while poor-performing teachers stuck to regimented salaries. State Superintendent Tony Evers, the Democratic candidate for governor against Mr. Walker, has pledged to roll back. Walker's collective bargaining reforms and end of voucher program that helps 28,000 low-income students attend private school in Milwaukee. He also wants to raise taxes on the wealthy, manufacturers and farmers, to juice spending for public schools no matter their performance. Mr. Walker's reforms have saved the, states, the state billions of dollars and reduced property taxes. If Democrats take control of the state house in November, they'll attempt to reverse this progress and give unions the run of Madison Again, today's Wall Street Journal, and that is that is where the rubber meets the road here. The, the doom and gloom didn't happen. You, in fact, you are seeing improvement in student performance at a more efficient cost. Isn't that the standard? We want to run government as the private sector does. Sounds that way to me. All right, in a couple of minutes, I want to set up, speaking of schools... A topic we're going to get to in the 9 o'clock hour. 8.52, News Radio WTMJ. And that means the NLCS is here. WTMJ is live from Miller Park all day as the Dodgers come to town for Game 1 against the crew. Hall of Famer Bob Euchre on the call all postseason long. Our coverage starts tonight at 6.35. 8.55, Jerry Bader. Uh, in for Jeff Wagner, I know, but this isn't just, it's all because of the Brewers, okay? So anyway, uh, after 9 o'clock, we are going to talk about a, a school-related story, and there's a pretty good chance you've already heard it. It is the story about Shorewood High canceling a scheduled production of To Kill a Mockingbird because they got word of planned protests because the production would include the N-word. Just reading a little bit here from the Journal Sentinel's coverage. When Shorewood High School chose to kill a mockingbird as this year's annual fall play, it seemed a relevant commentary on the Times, based on the Harper Lee classic about a white Southern lawyer defending an innocent black man in the 30s. But Lee's book, which has been banned by many schools across the country, I didn't know that. I know there was proposals to do that remains as controversial today as it did when she wrote it. On Thursday, just hours before the curtain was to go up, Sherwood canceled the production in response to a planned protest over the use of the N-word in some scenes. This does not fall cleanly, as the Journal Sentinel accurately points out, between uh, on racial lines. 
everybody is ticked off at this for one reason or another. Those who were upset about the presence of the words, hey, this isn't what we wanted. We just, we just wanted the word omitted. You didn't have to cancel the production. And then there are those who say the word shouldn't have been omitted. In context, it helps people understand what the world looked like when Harper Lee, I, I don't remember the exact year, 1960-ish, wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. Of course, it's set in her childhood years. And so you have that. So now everyone pretty much is disappointed. Shorewood's saying, you know, internally, Shorewood High, we addressed the sensitivity of the issue, but we didn't do that well enough to the community. So there are a gazillion things you can call in about after 9 o'clock. Okay, maybe 3. Should they have canceled it? Should they have omitted the word? And what about the whole notion of bending to this threat? Whatever the right and wrong is, is it a whole separate issue to bend to the threat of the protest? We'll get to that in the next hour. 858 News Radio, WTMJ. Good NLCS Friday morning, Wisconsin. Jerry Bader. In for Jeff Wagner, but here in this time slot, because Steve Scafidi will be at Miller Park. Starting at noon, uh, of course, building to game one of the NLCS. All right, let's talk about this. The Academic Mortgage Talk and Text Line 414 799 1620. Already have a thoughtful text on this. This is a story you may have heard. If you follow the news at all, you probably have. Shorewood High School was to begin a production, a multi evening production, at To Kill a Mockingbird last evening. Hours before that was to happen, it was canceled when school the whole run, when school officials learned of planned protests because the production would use the N-word. And there, there are those in the community who were offended by that. Now, there are at least two, I think, important elements to this story. Should people take offense to that word whenever it's used, even in historical context, to make a point, and what message does it send that the school, in in fear of protests, canceled the production, which means if I don't like what you're going to say, I'll say I'm going to protest you and you will shut up. And I, quite frankly, didn't understand the scope of the controversy. I knew there were efforts around the country to ban the book. I didn't know there had been so many successful efforts to ban what has become considered an American classic. Now, if you read the Journal Sentinel story, they make it pretty clear that this isn't, not everybody is falling into what might be considered the usual fault lines here. The school district said in the statement, we've concluded that the safest option is to cancel the play. The decision has angered and disappointed students and parents on both sides of the debate. That was never a request. We asked for the word to be omitted, said Patience Phillips, the mother of three African-American students involved in the protest. 
I understand that the children put a lot of work into this place, she said. This doesn't create a dialogue. It causes more of a division. Stacy Sinold had two children in the play, both of whose characters utter the slur. She called the production one of the most poignant she'd seen and said the school's decision to use the slur sparked important conversation with her children. This is a great loss to the community, she said of the cancellation. This play is a warning of what happens if we don't change our ways. And it's a message of hope that young people might be the reason things change. And they've had other controversial performances before, Spring Awakening, Town, Rent, and others that, as the paper puts it, pushed boundaries. Shorewood officials recognized this potential landmine and attempted to brace parents and students from the beginning. When the cast was first selected, they issued a statement, and here it is, from their website. To Kill a Mockingbird, which takes place in Alabama in the 1930s, reflects a difficult and ugly time in American history. Thematic issues of racism and segregation are prevalent. Now listen carefully to this next line. To accurately and honestly complete the narrative, for emphasis, I repeat, to accurately and honestly complete the narrative, the N-word will be used in the production. The fact that our society still struggles to truly embrace racial equality symbolizes that our work is not yet done and that Harper Lee's Mockingbird is as relevant in 2018 as it was in 1960 when the story was published. Here comes another word. Our fidelity to the production of this play. Our fidelity to the production of this play from the 1930s does not condone the use of the N-word in any context, for example, in music lyrics, friendly banter, or discussions today. Saying this is not in any way a validation or saying it's okay to use that word in, in, in common conversation. But it needs to be there to fully understand the, the context that was intended. So, what do you think? Call the Accudet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620, 414-799-1620. News Radio, WTMJ. 915, okay, 916, News Radio, WTMJ, 414-799-1620. Shorewood High School cancels the production of To Kill a Mockingbird because there were threats of protest over the N-word. Should they have canceled it? Should they have taken the word out? Or should they have said, look, protests aren't going to stop us from doing what we're going to do? We go first to a longtime listener of my show and my former radio incarnation, Tim in Lublin. Happy Friday, my friend. Well, happy Friday, my friend, to you, too. It's always good to hear you when you get a chance to stretch your talents on the air where they should be. Um, my question is, is this. Uh, what do you, would you think is if they had done a, still went forward with the production and sort of sanitized it? I've known, for example, some school districts will still uh, review and, and read the, uh, Mark Twain's classic, Huck, yeah. The Adventures of Huck Finn. And, of course, as you know, one of the characters that Huck becomes friends with is a black man who happens to be a slave, which is referred to as N-word Jim in in the context of it. But they they will re-release it and refer to him as Negro Jim. Uh, Does it 
seemed to lose its edge in terms of the context of the point being made, or does the point still get across cleaned up a little bit? And would that be the case here in To Kill a Mockingbird? See, and that's that really is the $64,000 question, isn't it, Tim? And let me go back to the statement. Now, this is the statement they put on the website before the controversy erupted. Uh, to accurately and honestly complete the narrative. I think in this case, and I, and I don't know about Twain, but I think in this case, Tim, you are attempting to sanitize and you're diluting the whole point that Harper Lee, I think, was making at the time. People used to use that word freely. That was wrong. You can use this as a teaching experience. Look, this is the way it was back then, and I think you run into a serious danger of erasing history by trying to make it more palatable. I, I, I agree with that. And as you were talking, I just was thinking of another point possibly with this, too, if I, if I could bring this up as well, my friend. In light yes, of what happened recently in Washington, specifically with Brett Kavanaugh and everything else and the protest, uh, the Republicans managed to hold their ground on, on a good principle, the principle of due process. And I'm wondering if Harper Lee's book, To Killing Mockingbird, also doesn't raise that question as well, too, because unfortunately, if we know the story, he is convicted yeah. not because of anything that the crime shows, but because he eventually said, said on the stand that he was a black man that felt sorry for a white woman, which was not acceptable at that time. And But there was still the idea of due process did occur even though the process went wrong. And I kind of wonder if, if uh, in the demand of you, if we accuse you of something, uh, we don't need process, the accusations enough, if that point wouldn't be made in this story as well to a bigger question. That is actually an interesting point, Tim. Thanks for the call. You're right, it's, it's off track, but interesting nonetheless. To Jeff in Green Bay, Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Jeff? Actually, or Steve, I'm sorry, Steve, Steve, Steve. Hey, no problem. Go ahead, Steve. Thanks for Steve? taking my call, Jerry. I'm here. Yeah. Um, yep. Go ahead. What's as your... I told you, Screener, why do we try to change history? I mean, this was part of our history. I think the, the premise of the story, it, it's a good premise. It shows prejudice and a man standing up to deal with it. You look at the culture today with kids, and I can probably... <clears throat> Pretty safe in assuming that word is used a lot in the music they listen to. You know, we can't keep changing our history. We have to learn from our history. Okay, that's what. That, Steve, thanks for the call. And boy, what an excellent point. How can you learn from history if you whitewash it? If you try to make it go away, you can't learn from it. I absolutely do not think. Here's here's my take on this. I think the word needs to be there. And I think, at least internally, they explained very well why. It has become virtually the only word in the English language that can never, under any context, be spoken, except by African-American entertainers. And I, I, think if, I think you do lose something if you don't include that word. In context, I think it's, it should have stayed. I, so here's my position on this. They certainly shouldn't have canceled, and I don't think they should have bowed to threat of protest to have to change the way they planned on presenting something because that door has been opened too wide already. 
That's just, I, I think those are two important principles. Uh, the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620, if you want to weigh in. 921 News Radio WTMJ. He says he's going to run for re-election, and there are about three dozen Democrats who want to run against him. Steve Scafidi asks, is President Trump more popular among Republicans in 2018 than he was in 2016? Steve shares his thoughts at 1235 today. We are asking for your thoughts. Sherwood High cancels the production of To Kill a Mockingbird because of threats to protest. And what a disappointment for the kids. My wife, years, years in community theater, I, I never have. I know what it's like to rehearse and rehearse and prepare. You know, home alone nights while she's involved in a show. This is just devastating, and I think it just, it's, it's wrong on so many levels that we've already highlighted. To Dave and Appleton, Dave, you're on TMJ. Or Dan, I'm sorry, uh, Dan and Waukesha. Dan, go ahead. Good morning. Good morning. I, I totally agree with you that it is wrong for the school district to cancel the showing, or the showing, the production of To Kill a Mockingbird. I think they're being held hostage by the threat of uh, protest. I would call it protest terrorism or potential terrorism. I, I go a little lighter than that. I call it the heckler's veto. But it, it's, it is intimidation. You're absolutely right about that, Dan. Thanks a lot for the call. They were intimidated by protests, which, I, I, you know, that is, I wouldn't say terrorism, I wouldn't even say mob rule, but it's intimidation. And we, look, I, this isn't using the N-word in the pejorative in the way that you think of it, in, in the reason that makes us have to say the N-word. That's, that's not what this is. The historical con uh, context is critical. Chris in Janesville. Chris, go ahead. Hi. Uh, I have a unique perspective as far as being a theater major in college. Um, and in doing so, I had three years of, of theater history. Um, I, I think they should have left it as is. Theater is meant to be... Uh, in your face. It's meant to be uncomfortable. It, it's meant to talk about the, the things that we don't like to talk about and, and educate us on where we have been and where we should be. What an excellent point. You know what? If, it's, if you're comfortable with it, it's probably not all that beneficial to you intellectually, is it? Right. You know, that's, that, is, that is such a great point, Chris. Thanks a lot for the call. Sure. Things that get us out of our comfort zone a little bit, things that do that, are, are intellectually important. And, I, I, boy, the caving as quickly as they did, and, boy, just hours before the first production. This is just, I, I mean, I don't, I don't even know what, to, you know, there are so many issues here. Bowing to the heckler's veto, the disappointment for the kids. I do agree with this. I, I, you know, so what the protesters or potential protesters are saying is, well, we didn't want it canceled. We just wanted the word omitted. In other words, you wanted to dictate the free speech of others. And I know you don't see it that way, but that's what it is. To Kurt in Wauwatosa. Kurt, you're on TMJ. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'll let you know right off the bat that I'm a progressive. 
And I do agree that this, uh, with everything that everybody's been saying, that the word should have been left in there. But earlier in this conversation, you made a comment about whitewashing of, uh, of American history, of our history. And I would argue mm-hmm. that our history has already been totally whitewashed. And that's part of the problem because, uh, you know, whether it's Native American history or, uh, uh, you know, getting out the information about what some of our founding fathers did, in particular Thomas Jefferson with some of his slaves and things like that. But, you know, that that, that just goes right to the core of the issue. You know, who, who gets to dictate who says what and what, what's presented to the kids? And uh, I agree that this this should have never happened. But, you know, our, our history has already been whitewashed. And if you look at history books, and I'm a historian, I run a, a, a large historical society in Wisconsin, and um, was a history major in college, archaeology major in college. And I can tell you that if anybody knows history, you'll know that it's already been whitewashed. And that's just the point that I wanted to make. Thank you. Kurt, and, and wait, Kurt, don't go anywhere. Not, not, not a bad point. Did you take off, Kurt? Darn it. Because what I was going uh, to ask Kurt is, so is the answer more whitewashing, though? And I, and I think that's the problem. Uh, let's get Greg in here before the news. Greg in Watertown. You're on TMJ. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Hmm? Uh, two quick points. One, the whole whitewashing thing is uh, you can't do that. I mean, it's just it's not right. you got to know what your history is or, like they've always said, you're doomed to repeat it. And you had said earlier uh, about, oh, only black entertainers are allowed to use that word. Well, to me, that becomes a double standard. They complain about people using it. Oh, that's derogatory. Oh, that's racist. But yet they're allowed to use it. I don't agree with that. I think, like I said, it becomes a double standard. Greg, thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate it. After the news, we have someone on the line who says they should have canceled it. And, of course, we'll take your calls as well. The Aconec Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620, and a bunch of texts to get to as well. Well, and that means the NLCS is here. WTMJ live from Miller Park all day as the Dodgers come to town for Game 1 against the crew. Hall of Famer, just heard him, Bob Euchre, on the call all postseason long, and our coverage starts tonight at 635. We have been discussing, and we will continue to discuss in this half hour, the decision by Shorewood High School to cancel a production of To Kill a Mockingbird because of threatened protests over the use of the N-word. Getting your thoughts on that, 414-799-1620, the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Janelle on the east side says they should have canceled it. Janelle, hi, you're on WTMJ. Hi, I really appreciate you taking my call. Um, so I had some time to think about this last night after I heard the story and also while I was on hold here. And there's two really main points that I'd like to make as to why I think, unfortunately, the school's only real decision was to cancel the play. Um, the first one being the fact that I do think there is a very big difference between underage minors performing this play and saying this word versus if it were, I don't know, the rep or something else like that. I, I would definitely have a different opinion. Um and then secondly, um, and something that this is also kind of difficult, especially for like a white person to really admit, is that 
the uh, the onus of being offended by a particular word really does fall to those people who the word has historically marginalized. It's not really my decision to say that that word doesn't offend me. Um, I understand the historical importance, and I think To Kill a Mockingbird is an especially important story for us to revisit now, and especially kids at that age, and they should read the story. And when they read it, they should read the story with the word in it. But when it comes to performing it, I mean, I, I have to think, what about the kids in the play that would be cast as the roles that say that word? What are the repercussions to them? So I think it's unfortunate, and I think a lot of adults drop the ball along the way and saying, like, maybe we shouldn't do this. But given the fact that people clearly did seem to be offended by it, I think that's really their only option at this point, to cancel. Well, but if people are offended by it, then isn't their choice not to go? Uh, certainly it is. Certainly it is. And I think that really does um, also include the point of these are underage kids performing this play, and there's going to be repercussions clearly regardless um, if they perform it or if they don't. Um, it, it, it really does throw a whole wrench into this equation when you're talking about the fact that it's a bunch of high schooler kids and not a bunch of adults. Again, I'd have a different opinion if we were talking about the rep, but a bunch of underage kids mm-hmm. performing this and saying this, I guess incendiary stuff to some people it is. Um, it's just, it's not a good idea, and the repercussions of it could be uh, unintended, really. Janelle, thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate Thank it. Uh, here's you. what I would say to that. Uh, okay, she makes some good points. She she does. Doesn't mean I necessarily agree with it entirely, but she made some good points. As for it not being adults, uh, you know, and the repercussions. Well, all right. If they're going to face repercussions for using a word in a play, then that's a whole other lesson. I think the the school district has to teach. And. and I look. I understand what she's saying about those who would be offended, and I've said this as a white person. There are things I cannot understand. Let me ask you this though: If the school was going to put on a play based in World War II, the Pacific Theater, and the play's script used a word for Asians that I'm not going to say on the air that starts with G or a three-letter iteration of Japanese that I'm not going to say on the air, should that be expunged, even though we know darn well, because my dad was one of them, soldiers in the South Pacific, he was in, in the Army Air Corps, but soldiers in the South Pacific certainly use that language. Should we just pretend they didn't? Uh, you know, and... and when you make a decision, and I understand what Janelle is saying, we can't understand the offense, but I think if you understand that, yes, while it's the kids saying those things, they are roles, they are actors, and if by 16 or 17 students can't differentiate that, then don't, man, then don't we maybe have another problem entirely to mark... In Kenosha, Mark, you're on TMJ. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. You know, I really wanted to touch on the protesting part of things. As another caller mentioned, uh, you know, he, he went a little far with saying, you know, like terrorist protests and, and mob rule and all that. 
Um, I think they did the right thing in canceling the play because that is offensive language. Just because it's not offensive to some people doesn't mean it's not offensive to other people. But the the nonviolent protesting, when society feels that there's there's something wrong that needs to be righted, I cannot fathom and wrap my mind around the fact that we seem to be shifting away from viewing nonviolent protests as the proper way to handle things. You know, especially with things like Kaepernick and, and just uh, Kavanaugh. I'm not advocating for violence. I think we should be doing nonviolent protests. But then we get all this rebuttal of people complaining about nonviolent protests. Well, what do you expect people to do when they feel that there is a wrong and they have to speak out and, and say something about that? I thought protesting was the the right thing to do. That's how you're supposed to handle a situation like that is nonviolently and peacefully protest. If we can't do that, what do we have left? What other discourse is there for us to stand up for what is right and what we believe in and to, to group up and say, hey, this is wrong and we think this should change? Well, let me say this, Mark. If they believed it was going to be nonviolent, and I don't know that there was any reason to believe otherwise, they should have allowed the protest to continue and the play both to continue. That would be my opinion. But apparently they were concerned, for whatever reason, that the protest would be something, I guess, uh, more than they, they thought was manageable. But I, what I would say is this, I think, I, and, and I think maybe you and I are on the same page. Mark, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, yeah, well, I think that you, know, you just... You just wrapped it together really well because if they thought that you just said the reason that they didn't do it was because they thought the protest would be too much to handle, that that seems like the exact opposite reason. If anything, they should think that, wow, there's a protest. That means people really don't like this. And that's the reason why we should cancel the play. No, I I disagree with that. Mark, thanks a lot for the call, but I disagree with that, that you're going to cancel something because some people don't like it. Boy, I cannot disagree with that more. Because that is the essence of free speech. That some people do, in fact, and remember, the school board is a government. So you can argue they are limiting free speech here, based on concerns of some in the population. All right, we still have a lot of people that want to talk on this. We will stay on this. 414-799-1620 on the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 942 News Radio WTMJ. The Brewers are set to host the National League Championship Series at Miller Park. Is this the best Brewers team in the history of the franchise? Steve Scafidi weighs in from where else? Miller Park, 107 this afternoon. All right, a hot topic to say the least. 414-799-1620, the Academic Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think we have had an excellent variety of calls on every angle of this issue. Shorewood High canceling scheduled productions of To Kill a Mockingbird because they got word on social media of protests over the use of the N-word. They had options. They could have just tried to have a conversation with the community and say, look, we, if, if you're offended, understand this is why we think it's important. And they did on their website, but apparently didn't get the word out enough. To accurately and honestly complete the narrative, the N-word will be used. I think that is absolutely fair. They could have taken the word out. They didn't feel that that would be right to do that. They could have 
you know, the heck with it. We're going to we're going to do this, and we'll deal with the protests. They could have taken the word out. I disagree with that. Or canceled. And I really don't. I, I certainly don't agree with that. Now, I don't. Did they fear violent protests? And and if so, why? To Dave in Wauwatosa. Dave, hi, you're on TMJ. Hey, good morning. Um, I'm glad I don't live in Sherwood. I I think it's ridiculous to have canceled this play. Um, and if the, if it's a binary option, leaving the word in or canceling, then change the word. And if you look at if you look at To Kill a Mockingbird, a classic story, um, that word to me is a very small part of the story. It's really about to say this person is a lower class citizen. This person is a reprobate. I mean, there's lots of synonyms that could have been used other than the N-word. And, and it's especially timely with the Kavanaugh trial. I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird is really an exact story that maps for the Kavanaugh uh, hearings. You know, so it's, it's, it's a classic. It's very timely. And I think it was gutless. Here, here they're canceling three hours before. Um, you know, grandmas had come into town. Um, everybody was ready. Yeah. This was a chance for the kids to do a production that they worked months on, you know, and all that's denied in the name of of succumbing to a protest. So the lesson that was learned is that, you know, the threat of a protest is enough to completely shut down an operation. I think that's a horrible lesson. So in the end, they should have just changed the word and moved forward. Dave, thanks a lot for the call. I, I, you know, I know it seems like that easy binary choice. First, let me say this. He is absolutely right about the lesson learned from a threat of a protest. He, he could not be more right about that. But I, here's what I would say. I think the lesson of, well, we're going to change something you don't like over threat of a protest, I, is that really any better, though? That's the concern. To Don in Waukesha. Don, go ahead. Hey, good morning. Uh, I, morning. I definitely believe that uh, they should not have canceled the play. And my take on it is is this, that when Harper Lee wrote this book, it was written as, it was written meant to be offensive and to draw attention to the extreme bigotry and prejudice of the times. So when people want to protest, they're, they're doing, you know, they can certainly protest, but they're offended, and they should have been. That's why she wrote it. Okay, isn't that the ultimate irony here, Don, is that this book is seen as a driving force in advancing the civil rights movement and is now seen as a, at least an element of it, is seen as offensive to the African-American community. That's exactly my point. Yeah, and it's she's a great saying, one. She's saying what should have been said. Don, thanks a lot for the call. And and, and where that gets lost, you bet. Where that gets lost, though, is you have to put it in historical context. Well, we're staying on this. I'll tell you what, we're going to take calls probably up to uh, the news. And I've got a bunch of texts. I, I, I've got there's really good texts. I've got to share them. Uh, we'll probably end up doing that uh, after ten o'clock. It's a hot topic. And there are just some absolute excellent thoughts on, even if I don't agree with all of them, I think people are making some excellent points, and that's what it should be all about. The Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620, News Radio WTMJ. 954 News Radio WTMJ with uh, the hot, hot phone topic we have. I forgot to uh, 
Keep you up to date on Bounce Back Friday on Wall Street, the Dow up 296.78. Talking about the decision by the Shorewood High School to cancel a production of To Kill a Mockingbird, threaten protests over the use of the N-word. To Amy in West Allis. Amy, hi, you're on TMJ. Hi. Okay, so I think the adults and the kids put a lot of time, energy, and sacrifice into coming up with this production. If there was a group that wanted to protest, why didn't they say that from the start? Why wait till the last minute? I don't think that was fair to anybody. I don't have an answer to that. What I would say is the district is saying they didn't do a good enough job of getting it out into the community. I, I'm speculating. I don't have the answer, Amy. Uh, Perhaps sorry. they just I'm recently sorry. found out. No, <laughs> no. but maybe maybe they, they just... To audition. I'm not saying you, but the, the kids knew they were auditioning. But right, right. It had to be around school. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. I think it was wrong of anybody to suggest protesting at the last minute like that. Amy, thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate it. From Amy to Amy, this one in Racine. Go ahead, Amy. Hi. Oh, sorry, Jerry in Pewaukee. My, uh, no, wait a minute. Who do we got here? We have, you have Amy okay. in Racine. Go ahead, Amy. Sorry about that. Boy, I'm struggling with the phones today. Go ahead. Uh, well, I was thinking, I, I don't think it was proper for them to to cancel it. I think in certain instances it's necessary for certain verbiage in order to provoke the emotion that they're going for, for the pain of the times. Um, if they were doing the Matthew Shepard murder, a movie or a play about that, you wouldn't be able to, to get what they're looking for if you change all the verbiage. Do you get what I'm saying? I do. In fact, it's a really good point, Amy, because let me, let me put some words in your mouth. Is this what you're saying? We have an issue if you're going to be offended by us trying to show you the way things used to be. Correct. Yes. Yes. And you wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, that's what the art, the art of, of theater is about. It's to provoke emotion and, and to start conversations. And if you, you change the verbiage in order to get that emotion and, and the, the, the idea of the time, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be effective. Amy, thanks a lot for the call. I, it, it's the same thing as when. Uh, movie studios are told don't have people smoking cigarettes in period pieces set when a lot of people smoke cigarettes. It just really doesn't. It's uh, and look, is that necessary? For example, my wife and I went and saw A Star Is Born. Boy, there was the f bombs all over the place. And otherwise, wow, what a great movie! But that you know, it it kind of wore on us. We do understand. We think they overdid it a little, but we do understand in. Uh, it's what you would expect people in those circumstances to say. Jerry in Pewaukee. Jerry, go ahead. Hi. Uh, you know, when I heard this about To Kill a Mockingbird, it actually reminds me that uh, I think there's a wider trend in terms of the PC police getting too deeply involved in the arts and literature. Um, in the last couple of years, uh, they were raising the um, funds to... Uh, create a statue for Ernest Hemingway, the literature, American literature great in northern Michigan, uh, because he spent a lot of time there as a youth. And the exact same thing happened where people came out of the woodwork and said, well, how could he have made this offensive comment and, and made this statement in these novels 70, 80 uh, years ago? And it became quite controversial. At one point, they weren't going to go forward with the, the statue. And here, this is one of the giants of American literature, a Nobel Prize winner, uh, brilliant books like um, For Whom the Bell Tolls, 
um, and, um, and and it was a very similar situation. And again, these writers, these artists, uh, they're writing in realistic manner uh, to capture uh, what the characters and what the people were like. Uh, and in doing so, they're trying to raise specific uh, points, obviously. So it's interesting. But I, I bring this up because I think. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot for the call. I mean, we I've said, we gotta we gotta. We're way over time here. Thanks a lot. 959 News Radio WTMJ. 1009 Jerry Bader. New hour, but we're going to stick on this topic for at least this segment. Uh, there are a bunch of texts that I want to get to, uh, but we have been on this for an hour now. Uh, just fabulous calls. Uh, and that is uh, at the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620. If you want to get in on the Shorewood High topic, now would be the time. I do uh, take a call or two and a bunch of texts I want to get to. And then there are, uh, believe it or not, other things to talk about. But uh, it has been, I think, a robust conversation thus far. Uh, a production of To Kill a Mockingbird canceled because of threatened protests on social media over the N-word. To Dave in downtown. Dave, go ahead. You just talk about feckless leadership from Shorewood. Absolutely ridiculous when every day, look, I'm 55 years old. I've grown up with that word my whole life through black culture, hip hop culture, whatever. Every hip hop song that's basically uttered has that word in it. Every day throughout the community that I'm involved with, that word is dropped, okay? It's just dropped. And for these people somehow to feign like a production, artistic relevance, Somehow that people are going to be offended by that word. It's a joke. It is an outright joke. It just has to be said. If we're going to drop that word, we drop it from all of society. So let's say, for example, that somebody says it at the store or it's in a hip-hop song or someone's going to post it as a meme on Facebook. It's every day. It's even more than what it used to be. But somehow, like... A historical novel, somehow, it's an outrage to the community. It's a joke. All it is is uh, some type of shakedown by somebody for something. Two, two points on what you just said. One is the situational offensiveness of the word. You're spot on about that. And, and something just popped up in my head when you talked about the artistic presentation, Dave. Remember all the controversy over the production out east of Julius Caesar, and Julius Caesar looked like Donald Trump? Now, that, did, that didn't get canceled, and he's, you know, mugged and stabbed, as Caesar is in the play. I, I did not, I, I mean, I was highly, highly critical of the producers of that play, but I did not call for it to be canceled. I think that, I've, you know, I had another microphone at my disposal at that time, and I used it to criticize it. That's how it's supposed to work. But it's art. I mean, we, we you know, yeah. it's the same thing where... Uh, on Kathy the Artist, where he dipped a uh, crucifix in here, and that's really offensive. And I don't know what he was arguing. It's art, whatever they want to argue. But it's just, that word is an everyday in hip-hop culture. It, it, every song that's, I don't know, I mean, I suppose if you Google it, you can find out the answer. It's in tens of thousands of songs yeah. that have been out for the last 30 years. But somehow it's been this this novel that is a critically acclaimed. It's, it's part of American culture. The thought police are, are just running rampant. Dave, thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate it. To 
Alex in Lake Geneva. Alex, go ahead. Hey, uh, I just want my... Oh, did we... I think we dropped Alex there. Sorry about that. That does happen. Modern technology is great, except, you know, when it's not. To Al in Escanaba, Michigan. Al, go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, first off, I wonder how many people who protested this have ever read To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a great piece of literature that's calling attention to the racism of the South. But, you know, and this should not have been canceled. Uh, yes, they could have used a different word, even though I would have felt that would have been inaccurate. I would have accepted it since it was under 18 people doing this play. I guess I can accept that. But it's calling attention to the racism. I mean, you know, when we look at the North and the South, I guess since we're pulling down statues of uh, the Southern Confederate heroes, should we uh, not pull down the, you know, statues of the Northern Confederates that helped, you know, win the war? I mean, I just, this is out of control. It's out of control. And respect for the Glosser and the great attention to racism that story gives, they should have not canceled this play. All right. Uh, Al, thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate it. Going to uh, handle some texts on this in just a minute and then on to other things. We're going to close the phones at this point. I, I think just a lot of really good calls all, on every aspect of the issue, and that's the way I like it when it works out. But I will wrap up on this in a couple of minutes. 1014 News Radio WTMJ. 1017 Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner and Steve Scafidi's time slot because Steve will pick it up at noon from Miller Park and, of course, the NLCS. Uh, game one tonight. I want to share some texts on the story that we've been on for over an hour now. It's just a ton of really uh, interesting calls, I thought, on the Shorewood High decision to cancel a production of To Kill a Mockingbird because of threatened protests over the use of the N-word. Kevin in Muskego, Jerry, what is the standard to cave to possible protests? If you and I let a group to protest, say, a transgender bathroom policy, I'm sure we would be told to pound sand. It's a shame the school cave. The production should have gone on as is. The only way to be better in the future is to learn from the past, which is what the production would have been about. That that that, and that's you know where the rubber hit, meets the road here. I think is can we not share the way things used to be and put in context? Uh, you know this. Uh, for for example, there were people who were upset that. Women weren't portrayed more in their role in advertising in Mad Men. And the producers came back, yeah, really? Women did, have, there were all sorts of barrier to entries to that profession. Now, that's not to say there weren't some women who didn't accomplish, but on whole, what Mad Men tried to show is it was a real battle for women back then. Andrew in Greenfield. By scrubbing historical context, aren't you downplaying the ugliness of past racism? My position is yes. I, I, I think that is exactly right. If you scrub out offensive words or actions from a historical context, that, in a sense, makes the racists not seem as bad as they were. That's just an outstanding point. By including the full ugly context, you get a better sense of why this is wrong. I will put it this way. If you're not willing to take the heat on this, then I, I wouldn't schedule it. I wouldn't choose it. Because you probably should have had some kind of sense this would happen. Uh, it's a very thoughtful and compelling explanation of the timelessness of race relations and fidelity to the work. What's the point if you're going to just cancel it? 
But the drama teaches, uh, what the drama teachers rather need to do is to write an original play based on this very debate. Call it Mockingbird Killed. You're welcome. Tony P. in Broomfield, Colorado, formerly a Brookfield, and he says, Go Brewers. Uh, let's see. I disagree with the person who was planning the protest, saying that canceling the play stops communication on the subject. A protest is not communication. Well, in a way it is. I know, I, I get it. But in a way it is. Uh, did the protesters attend, uh, uh, I'm not quite sure, uh, today they're, Text broke up. They look at the practice and request a conversation. Did they suggest holding town meetings prior to the play uh, or after the play? Yeah, that was the other thing. Why just at the last minute threaten a protest? Those who suppress or ignore historical facts, texts another listener, are doomed to repeat said history. That That is what I think you're doing. And an earlier caller said a lot of history has been whitewashed, which, by the way, I do not disagree. But does that mean then the answer to that whitewashing is more whitewashing? Uh, another texter. This is simply another version of the mob shutting down thoughts they're intolerant of. No critical thinking here, nor creativity. These works of literature offer opportunities to teach and discuss complex issues. They'd rather tell people what to think than teach them how to think. Very, very well put. Uh, Next, actually, Shorewood High School could even make a semester's classwork of writing uh, said Mockingbird killed plays weighing in again. I would almost guarantee this will garner support from the community. I I really... uh, I, I, she just makes really good point. I don't know if it's he or she. Uh, next, N-word should have been used. The end of the production could have presented the students' feelings about the word. Oh, oh, a conversation afterwards. That would have been really good. And the students who had to mouth that word. Uh, feelings about the word and what they would like to see happen in their community to bring unity. It's about behavior, not skin color. The website information prior to the production could have added the importance of the students talking about this lesson. I mentioned this earlier, but I will say it again. That's really the irony here of the purpose, two things, the purpose and what was accomplished by Harper Lee writing this book. It was to expose using 1930s. For example... She wrote it in 1960. Imagine what would have happened if she attempted to make it contemporary to the South at that time. I don't think it ever would have gotten published. And she was, however, using even then a historical... And and remember, it's not set even in 1960. It's set in the 1930s. Just... And we are either going to, as a society, say, look, you know, yeah, there, there are things in our past we, we don't tolerate anymore, but not pretend that they weren't there. And I do think it's a very, very dangerous road to go down. It seems with every passing day, there's a story that just saddens me about where we are as a society, how callous we have become. We will get 
to such a story after 10.30. It is 10.23, News Radio WTMJ. And then they took Game 2 and Game 3, and that means Game 1 of the NLCS is here. Not only are the players ready, but so is Mr. Baseball. John Mercure shares a unique look at Bob Euchre at 4.30 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. I need to share one more text on the To Kill a Mockingbird controversy uh, before we move on. My name is Chris from Madison. I wonder why stories like this or Huckleberry Finn are even brought up anymore. What purpose do they serve? And are they teaching people a word that they might not have ever known? If we can, should we be able to try to be eliminating the use of these words altogether? Well, as other callers have pointed out, Chris, it's, it's used heavily in some areas of our culture. So it's never going to go away. But in terms of because something in historical context contains something that's offensive today, how, why do you open that door, Chris? How far do you go in saying, well, this offends people, so we can't put this on anymore. This play includes this, or this play includes that. There were people, I, the example I gave earlier, I'm, I'm one of them, and I'm not a huge fan of the president, but I am one who said the production of Julius Caesar that had a Donald Trump lookalike in a business suit stabbed was deeply offensive to me, and I actually thought it was dangerous. However, I think I parted ways with some other conservative talk shows where I did not call for the production to be shut down. I, I It's... It's just a dangerous door to open even a crack. And let's be honest, it's been opened more than a crack. And, as many callers have pointed out, the problem, Chris, is, okay, you say don't show those, but then there are people who are offended by other things. It is, I know it sounds like the slippery slope. The problem is, we are on that slippery slope. And and we have seen it. And the reality is, if you're uncomfortable with, you know, if you learn a word's going to be used that you're uncomfortable with, you have the right not to go. There are TV shows that I have stopped watching because, quite frankly, I think they just darken my soul. I don't want Netflix to ban them or eliminate them. I don't feel that way about it. I choose not to watch. Those who are offended can choose not to to participate. I mean, that's... Unfortunately, however, that strategy has been one-sided over the years. One side preaches that. You know, if you don't like it, don't attend, but then doesn't necessarily practice it. And that that's the problem. In the next half hour, I want to take up a disturbing topic. It involves the death of a child in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area. Kent County, Michigan, to be exact. And it falls under a, a, a category of this. There's something that I say, it's almost, it's almost hard to say anything is shocking anymore. Because that which, I, I, I don't know, we are bombarded with so much stuff every day that it's hard to know, shocking, it's hard to be shocked when everything is shocking, right? And yet... Here is a story 
that is shocking. It's not even so much the death. It's the way that the father of a young child dealt with the death. The audio isn't great, but we're going to try the 911 call nonetheless. I think you can pick it up. We'll do that after the news. This is just a frighteningly disturbing story. 1035 News Radio WTMJ. Brian Braun, the uh, only active player from 2011. Of course, the other guy, Craig Council, who is now the manager from 2011. Uh, now he's the manager, obviously. And I, I got to tell you, so I'm going to miss game one. And it's for a good reason, though. My wife and I are actually volunteering. Contemporary Christian artist Matthew West is performing in Oshkosh tonight. And we're actually volunteering, helping out with, with various things. Uh, and, by the way, he's one of my favorite contemporary Christian artists. So I'm really excited about that. I, I, I would not want, to, even if I could go back and change it, I wouldn't miss the concert for Game 1. But I'm also going to miss Game 3. I'm going to be at the Packers game Monday night. So, Jordan, here's what I can predict. They are going to win games one and three and lose game two. When I, <laughs> when I am home and able to see it. I don't know that that's going to happen. But, in fact, look, I, just, I, hope, I certainly hope they win the two without me being able to be viewing or listening on the radio. Uh, but uh, it is just, it is so awesome how excited not just the city of Milwaukee is, but the whole state over the Brewers. One of my favorite quotes is from 1973. Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Dan Rowan commenting on the cancellation of what for that time was a very, very edgy, issues-driven TV show. They, they just didn't exist before then. Uh, sometimes controversial, not as controversial as the Smothers Brothers, but both had their edges. Upon the cancellation, Dan Rowan explained it this way. It's hard to be irreverent when there's nothing left to revere. Just think. He said that 45 years ago. Dan Rowan felt there was nothing left to revere 45 years ago. Which reminds me, before the end of the show, I have to talk about Kanye in the Oval Office. Have to do that. Jordan, if I don't get to it, when it looks like I've forgotten it, make sure and yell in my ear about that, because I, I absolutely don't want to forget to do that. Not only is it enough, you know, hard to be irreverent when there's nothing left to revere, what made me think of that, it's hard to be shocked when everything is shocking, or seemingly so. Yet, I was shocked this week. I actually had planned to do this on yesterday's show, just didn't get to it. Grand Rapids, Michigan, the Fox TV affiliate there, reporting. A disturbing 911 call was played Wednesday during a preliminary hearing for a Kent County couple, that's Kent County, Michigan, accused of killing their child. Seth Welch and uh, Titania Fusari face murder charges for the death of their 10-month-old daughter, Mary, back in August. They allegedly allowed Mary to starve to death. All right, I said Mary was 10 months old, right? You know how much Mary weighed at the time of her death at 10 months old? 
eight pounds. That's my birth weight. That's a typical birth weight. It is amazing the child survived that long. So her death obviously shouldn't have come as a surprise to the people accused of starving her to death. Now that's shocking, right? That you would just let an otherwise healthy 10-month-old baby starve to death, weighing 8 pounds, emaciated isn't even the word that fits. But that, I'm sad to report, is not the most shocking part of the story. In a 911 call that was played in court Wednesday during the preliminary hearing, Welch, the father, Seth Welch, calls Kent County and tells the dispatcher that one of his children is dead. When the dispatcher asks why he thinks that, he says, I have no idea. We just woke up and she's dead. All right, I'm going to have Jordan play the 911 audio. It is, it's a little iffy, so if you don't, you know, just in case you don't pick up on it, I will flesh it out. Jordan, go ahead. Listen to part of that call and also the way Welsh describes his daughter's condition at the end of it. That is a doornail, guys. That's how he described her. The couple also has two other children, one two years old, the other four years old. And at last check, they were in the custody of family members. All right, if you miss that, here's what the father said in a 911 call. Uh, he says the child's been... Oh, how long ago did he find Mary? What he said there is about an hour and a half. I called my lawyer to ask what's the best thing I can do. And they said, wait until they are here to call police. I was waiting on legal counsel. So what's more shocking here? That he was that unshocked about his child's death, that he was able to, well, I better call a lawyer. So he calls a lawyer. Now, what does that tell you? Who does that? Perhaps someone who knows they have starved their child to death. This type of indifference to human life is something I will never accept and I just cannot understand. And this is why I get frustrated now with babies being left in hot cars and dying where we have just kind of default accepted those as accidental. It's negligent. And, the, I mean, the depraved indifference that is so obvious in the way, uh, really, I wake up, oh yeah, dead as a doornail. Doornail. De- dead as a doornail. And, you, and I know you couldn't pick it up all that well, perhaps, on the 911 call, but just the complete indifference in his voice. And I know there are all sorts of theories of how we have gotten here as a society. Many people assign blame to the abortion issue. I I have to admit, I used to reject that notion, but I actually think there is something to that. But setting that aside for a moment, what type of human being can get up every morning and I'm assume hold or look at a child clearly starving to death, a 10-month-old child? It's heartbreaking enough 
that children die every day or go hungry every day because they cannot get food. And in, in an environment where obviously that wasn't an issue, I, I just, the coldness, the callousness of it, I, I, I'm the type of person that prays over those things. And just try not to ask why too hard, but, but how can you not? All right, on to other things in a few minutes. 1043 News Radio WTMJ. 1047 News Radio WTMJ. Yeah, game one of the NLC. I, I, I have, look, have to admit, the National League Championship Series. Uh, or not lose Championship Series. I, I just. I, I do one of two things when it comes to sports. I'm either ridiculously optimistic or ridiculously pessimistic. I'm kind of the classic Packers fan. A lot of Packers fans have written the Packers off. I haven't. But I do get, oh, are you kidding me? But then you look around the NFC, and a lot of teams are underperforming. The championship uh, champion Eagles, the Vikings, the Rams look ridiculously tough right now. That may hold. They're, they're a good team. They've made a lot of moves. Uh you know, so I, I'm. I think, and that's really part of what's driving my excitement about the Brewers. Baseball is my second sport as a fan. I have no first or second sport as a participant, <laughs> but as a fan, baseball is my second sport. But even with absent the Brewers, I love the baseball playoffs. I just do. 162 games is a lot for me, but I. I I really enjoy the playoffs. A man with the Brewers. I, I did not expect them to sweep. I, 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 I thought they might, but I didn't think they'd sweep the Rockies. And I, if it goes, Jeff Levering uh, spoke with them on the air the other day. He'd be surprised if this goes less than six games or fewer than six games, I guess is grammatically correct. I, I would have to agree with him on that. I do agree with him on that. It'd be nice if it went four with four Brewers wins. But I also, i got to tell you, I mentioned this yesterday, a, a game-winning, or series-winning, rather, Game 7. That's just, you know, that is just one of those things in sports, like none other. Exciting stuff. And, of course, you can hear it all here on WTMJ. All right, so let's uh, refresh this. The, the Dow is bipolar again. It was 119, 149. Here's what I would say. A rally is stalling, uh, is basically what I am seeing thus far. Global stocks steadied Friday, calming jittery investors who had been weighing whether this week's deep sell-off was the beginning of a broader downturn or simply a two-day blip. Equity markets from the U.S. to Asia have suffered the biggest shakeout since February, a bunch of concerns, rising interest rates, a steep rise in bond yields, and escalating trade tensions between the U.S. and China. I think all of those things factor in. Now, as earlier this morning, in fact, at the opening bell, I think it was up nearly 400. And you look at a chart now, and it's up again, it's down again, it's up again, it's down again. I think you need some perspective here. First, I read a piece this morning. I, I didn't print it for my show prep, but it points out the Dow, right? Uh, even as of today, as, as of today's open, 
was 7,000 points higher than the day after Donald Trump was elected president. Let that rattle around. I'm old enough to remember when the market wasn't at 7,000. Yes, that means I'm old. But it also means perspective is important here. So, I mean, you can't panic. Even the huge drops that we've seen in terms of percentage, which is what counts, it's just not what it used to be when you're up in the 25,000 range. But now for the $64 billion question, and even that's lowballing, is this the end of a long, long, long bull market? I have no idea. I will say this, there is still obviously some timidity because the everybody knew looking to the futures it was going to be a strong open it is running out of steam a bit as we head near the midday uh, now up 144 but again as I look at it uh, what was the high water mark so far today uh, yeah near 400 ish uh, from what I can see looking at this so even even today you're not seeing it come roaring back the way it looked like it was going to in the opening bell. I have stopped predicting the stock market a long, long time ago. I spoke with someone yesterday who's 28 years old, and she said, well, I don't even want to let you're 28 years old. I mean, you certainly, at this point, you know, talking about her 401k, it just, it, it, for her, and if you're of that age, okay, here are the people that pay close attention to this, people like me. I'm 57. All right, 10 years or less, probably about 10 years to retirement. You get nervous, especially, and here's what makes it really difficult. Because of this amazing, incredible, unprecedented run, my 401k stuff and, and my IRA stuff is just through the roof dizzying compared to where they were just a couple of years ago. So, you know, the temptation can be great. Oh, man, you know, do I want to start over again on this stuff? What if it's going to, you know, what if it gets into correction territory or worse? The Dow. Some of the other markets already have. I have no idea. My guess is this. I don't think you're going to see, uh, it's a guess, anything that resembles a major, major continuation of this. I think the big debate is, is the Fed moving too fast? The economy, the, the major fundamentals are outstanding right now. And I, the reality is, you know, however I feel about Donald Trump's character, President Trump, I won't deny that his pro-growth policies, the things that he advances, have made a difference. Even just, even just attitude if he hasn't gotten a lot of things done legislatively. The pro-business mentality has helped. The economy is soaring. There's no disputing that. However, in a soaring economy, the raising of inflation rates is to, uh, a raising of interest rates is to keep inflation in check. And that, that really hasn't reared its head just yet. So, I, I don't know. 
I think the president is being overly critical of the hikes, but I do think they're a bit over-aggressive. And I think, I, I don't know, I don't know what I think, but uh, I, I would be surprised if you saw a continued steep drop. 1054 News Radio WTM. 1057 News Radio WTMJ. Yeah, a lot of brewer talk today, and why not? Uh, on the cusp of perhaps their second World Series appearance. I, I mentioned this the other day. 1982. I remember it like it was yesterday. Fletcher Hall, UW Oshkosh. I remember the out. They were in the AL back then. Rod Carew for the Angels. I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. Someone's going to Google and go, boy, does your memory stink? Because that's not right at all. But I think I, think I am, in fact, right about that. All right, we're going to get to a couple of things. Uh, well, we're going to get to several things. But right after the news, Michelle Obama yesterday contradicted other prominent Democrats, including Eric Holder and Hillary Clinton, on the... Let's let's get in the gutter with the Republicans is this whole myth that they're in the high road in the first place. But we're going to talk about that, and we're going to dovetail it into uh, Peggy Noonan piece, Voices of Reason and Unreason, really good stuff. But I have a rather strange question we're going to answer right after the, after the news. Do you talk to yourself, and does that make you... Ooh, we'll get to that. 1058 News Radio WTMJ. 11.08, Jerry Bader, in for Jeff Wagner, but in Steve Scafidi's spot because on a chilly autumn day, he's going to be in Red Hot Miller Park, game one of the NLCS. Eric Bilstead, I have a couple of questions for you. Uh-oh, okay. No, they're, it's fine, relax. They're all, I wouldn't put you on the spot. Well, I would be. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Right. Okay, I, I, first, a, a Brewer's question. Okay. You know, I don't know if you're aware of this mini-debate. Is the break a good thing or a bad thing? A super hot team like the Brewers having this four days at, when you would just rather see them playing baseball. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think the rest is good. I think, you know, I would have loved to have seen the Dodgers go five games sure, with, sure. with the Braves. Yeah, what's, what's your take on that? You know, I have to admit, I like it if you keep playing baseball. I remember... I think it was the Colorado Rockies about 10 years ago or something. They just were on fire. They won like 20 out of 21 games or something to get into the playoffs. They rolled through the playoffs, and they sat and waited and waited for the Red Sox and then yeah. got beat up really easily. I, I, it can go either way. You know, football's always big on this, too. Yeah. When you've wrapped up everything, you know, the, the number one seed, they arrest players, that 16th game off, and, and you do see that happen. I, I just The Brewers shook them out just champing at the bit. And, I, and I'm not worried about it. Okay. I, I'm really not. But, but we'll see. All right, question two. Eric, you talk for a living. Do you ever talk to yourself? Sure. You do. Like, in, in what context? What, what kind of things do you mean talking to yourself? How does uh, it come out? Usually, this is going to sound really silly, but it, it has nothing to do with the radio even. I will talk to myself if I'm trying to plan some kind of conversation I'm having on the phone yes. with, <laughs> with someone else, whether it's like uh, a doctor or trying to figure out how I'm going to get something done or a form that I need. Some kind of business-related conversation over the phone usually is when I have that planned ahead of time. You, you rehearse future conversation, yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, see, now, this is interesting. I, I'm doing it a lot lately, and it's driving my wife insane. Because, <laughs> see, I've got, especially this week, because now I was filling in for Jeff mm-hmm. from noon to three, right? Yeah. So my day job is media trackers, and, and I'm alone in my office. So I've been, you know, walking through things I'm going to say in the air later in the day, sure, right? Okay. Yep, yep. In, 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 in the morning, plus I'm blessed to give messages at our church once a month, and I walk through how I'm going to handle that. So she sees me, it looks like she's thinking I'm going to say something to her. She goes, what? <laughs> no, no, well, no, it's not, I'm sorry. So you and I talk to ourselves the same way, preparing for future conversation. Right, yes. I found this really interesting website called psychcentral.com, talking to yourself, a sign of sanity. But Dr. Linda Sappet in PhD is not talking, and this is where I don't know if I agree with her. I I agree with, you know, it's okay the way you and I do it, but she says, look, talking with yourself not only relieves the loneliness, it also makes you smarter. It helps you clarify your thoughts, tend to what's important, and firm up any decisions you're contemplating. You know what, there is something to that, because oftentimes if you say something out loud that you're thinking, in your brain your mind is lying to you, telling you that it sounds perfect, or that's a great logical argument, but once you actually put it out there and you hear yourself Uh. say it, then you realize, boy, that is just a foolish thing to say. You know, you got me on that. <laughs> because way too many times in my life, I did the second part, not the first part. Not, not say it, especially into one of these yeah, things. Right. <laughs> uh, but listen to this, though. Here are four types of self-talk that will make you smarter. Complimentary. Why wait to get compliments from another? If you deserve them, give them to yourself. <laughs> oh, do, do you buy that one? No. <laughs> but me either. Motivational talk, I do buy that one. Pep, pep talking okay, yourself. Yep, sure. I'm, yep, I, I'm okay with that one. That that's okay. Outer dialogue, and this is exactly what you were talking about. Having trouble with making a decision: should you stay or should you go? Mm-hmm. You know, take it from outside your brain. Goal setting. Let's say you're trying to be better organized so the holidays aren't so frenzied. Setting a goal making and a plan can be a big help. So instead of writing a list, talk it out. All right, I can buy that, that one. I can buy it. It wouldn't work for me, but but I can buy it. It's just I'm glad to know because I will tell you in the office building where I have my day job, I've been busted. I've been walking down the hallway. So you know, I'm gonna. Eric Pilsad of WTMJ agrees. It doesn't mean I'm crazy. All right, Eric. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. All right, coming up in a couple of minutes, uh, the next iteration of the story about. Uh, Democrats claiming uh, that they've ever gone high. Nobody, my argument, and just be clear, nobody goes high in politics, not left, right, nor otherwise. But you had Hillary Clinton, of course, recently say, we'll be civil after we win back all the levers of power. Wow. And Eric Holder also agreed with that. Michelle Obama did not. We're going to share her comments from the Today Show, if you missed them, and then a really good column on this today. We'll get to all of that in a couple of minutes. 1114 News Radio WTMJ. At 1116 News Radio WTMJ, Jerry Bader. All right, listen, I really am excited about the concert my wife and I are going to tonight, but if I hear any more Bob Euchre like that, my head's going to explode. Darn it! I, I just, I'm going to record the game. 
It'll be all good. But I am getting. I just tell. I'm, I got the feet tapping thing going on here in the studio. Every time I hear euchre, I'm one of those. It's like, man, let's get it started. Oh wait, I'm not going to be there for it. Well, that's okay. Uh, and if you are fortunate enough, especially to be at Miller Park, man, just take it all in because, as we know, it doesn't happen uh, all that often. So. In the last week or so, last few days, there have been two high-profile Democrats, a former presidential candidate, former Secretary of State, former First Lady, Hillary Clinton, saying, you know, enough with civility. We need to fight fire with fire. And really, Republicans, but she is talking about President Trump. Enough with this, they go low, we go high. I... I I just disagree with anybody going high. That doesn't happen in American politics anymore. I'm just being real. Eric Holder said the same thing. Michelle Obama was asked about that yesterday on the Today Show and gave this answer. Fear is not a proper motivator. Hope wins out. Um, And if you think about how you want your kids to be raised, how you want them to think about life and their opportunities, Do you want them afraid of their neighbors? Do you want them angry? Do you want them vengeful? You know, if we think of the values that we try to promote to our children, Savannah, you're a mother right now. And at this point, you have to think about what are the things you're telling your girls? Which motto do you want them to live by? Uh, And I I have to think about that as a mother, as, as someone who's a role model to young girls. We want them to grow up with promise and hope. And we can't model something different if we want them to be better than that. You know, it's a very interesting comment by her. And I can't, by the way, I don't disagree with any of that. Hotair.com had an interesting response to this. She said, fear isn't a proper motivator. But they point out, it's a good motivator. Well... It's an effective motivator. In fact, there's that famous NFL Films clip with Paul Horning talking about Coach Vince Lombardi. Fear is a great motivator. Fear is a motivator. But beyond that, her point is adults are supposed to be role models for children. And, and I certainly don't disagree with that. Here, here's the problem, though. And I mentioned this on the air earlier this week in a long segment that I did on this. All that's really changed here is Democrats see someone who is a bigger bully than they are. Bullying has been a part of American politics for some time now. Republicans, conservatives felt that they were the ones getting bullied. That is how Donald Trump got elected. Now, I think even some people who voted for him were surprised at at what he is willing to do and the things he's willing to say. And that's really what Hillary Clinton and Holder are talking about, is not hiding it anymore. I made the comparison to Colonel Jessup in the movie A Few Good Men. In that famous speech on the stand in the trial, Jack Nicholson as Colonel Jessup says, you know, you're at parties and this, and you don't want to pretend I'm there doing what I have to do for you. Well... In modern politics, they don't hide Colonel Jessup anymore. That's all Hillary Clinton and uh, Holder are talking about. Is, you know what, we're not going to hide it anymore. The Republicans don't hide their Colonel Jessup anymore, so we're not going to hide ours. And my response to that is, one, I have been highly critical 
of the president's behavior. And you know, a lot of things getting checked off the conservative agenda doesn't change my position on that. And you know, the problem you have is when someone who is a Republican or conservative is going to criticize behavior of the left, you just you have no credibility in doing it if you just turn a blind eye to what President Trump is doing. But what you have here is, look, the, the, the Democrats did not take the high road in the whole Kavanaugh saga. It got to where it got because they didn't take the high road. Because one, Senator Dianne Feinstein didn't do the right thing when she got the information. And two, and really two is number one, they, they demonized Brett Kavanaugh before the, the allegations from Christine Blasey Ford. They considered him evil based on his judicial ideology, or, or I should say philosophy. So that, that's, that's just, you know, that's not the high road. Peggy Noonan has, I think, what is an excellent column on this in today's Wall Street Journal. I want to share it with you in a couple of minutes. 1122 News Radio WTMJ. 1124 News Radio WTMJ. Says he's going to run for re-election, and there are about three dozen Democrats who want to run against him. Steve Scafidi asks, is President Trump more popular among Republicans today than he was in 2016? Steve shares his thoughts at 1235 today. Just played a clip of Michelle Obama disagreeing with Hillary Clinton and Eric Holder on, well, how to respond to President Trump. And there's a column I want to share, but we can certainly take a call on this, to Jeff in Wauwatosa. Jeff, what's on your mind? How you doing? Yeah, uh, you know, Good. I'll tell you, it, it's this in a nutshell. Okay, now the Democrats are going to come out and say, you know, this, that they're going to start speaking their onions and this and that. All our politicians are out of control. Like I said before, um, for, for Michelle to come out and say, you know, this and that about Hillary, none of them should be out there. They all should be in jail for what they've done. And the American people should be outraged at both of them, at all of them. Because simply, this is it. The Democrats and Republicans are afraid of Donald Trump because of one thing. He is not a politician. And people are waking up saying, hey, I can do this job too. And I think in the long run, what's going to happen here is that it's, you know, people are going to start running. They're already doing it. But as far as I'm concerned, all politicians should be fired and start over. They're not working for the American people. Waters, all of them. You know that Jeff thinks murder. You know what I mean? Jeff thinks a lot. All right, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Uh, you got you got your point in, and and I do appreciate it. Well, in terms of being afraid, here's what I would say: is they still, and by by they, I mean with the exception of Republicans who've decided they're just going to adjust to Donald Trump. No one still knows how to navigate them, and they they him, and they still don't know. They still don't know when they're play, being played by him. For all my criticisms of the president, that's the one thing I do marvel at, is people still don't understand his manipulation. And whatever you think of him, I have to tip my hat. It is brilliant in the way that he does it. When he came out after the confirmation and he just both barrels against Christine Blasey Ford, it was clear, clear why. He was trying to incite them into protesting and get it because they just vented out sideways. That's why. And it's very, very effective. All right, as I mentioned, 
it's, it's effective for him. As I mentioned, Peggy Noonan has what I consider a piece related on this. I want to get it started here. We'll finish it up after the news. Voices of Reason and Unreason, Peggy Noonan, today's Wall Street Journal. What did the Kavanaugh controversy tell us about our historical moment? It underscored what we already know, that America is politically and culturally divided, and that activists and the two parties don't just disagree uh, with each other, but dislike and distrust each other. I would argue bordering on hating each other, and public opinion surveys bear that out. We also know the Supreme Court has come to be seen not only as a constitutional and inevitably political body, but as a cultural body. It follows cultural currents, moods, assumptions. It has frequently brushed past the concept of democratic modesty to make decisions that would most peacefully be left to the people at the ballot box after national debate. So citizens will experience the court as having great power over their lives, and nominations to the court will inevitably draw passion. And this was a fifth conservative seat on a nine-person court. But the Kavanaugh hearings had some new elements. There were no boundaries of inquiry, no bowing to the idea of a private self. Accusations were made about the wording of captions under yearbook photos. The Senate showed a decline in public standards of decorum. A significant number of senators no longer even pretend to have class or imitate fairness. The screaming from the first seconds of the first hearings, the coordinated interruptions, the insistent rudeness and the accusatory tones, none of it looked like the workings of the ordered democracy that has been the envy of the world. Two Republican senators this week wrote to me with a sound of mourning. One found it amazing and terrifying that seemingly, without very much thought, nearly half the United States Senate has abandoned the presumption of innocence in this country all to achieve a political goal. The other cited a truly disturbing result, one of the great political parties abandoning the constitutionally based traditions of due process and the presumption of innocence. At the very least, Senate Democrats overplayed their hand. I want to stop there. When we pick this up, she makes it clear that she has a bias in favor of sexual assault accusers. And yet, she was deeply troubled by what she saw. Uh, Jeremy Jeffress says the NLCS is here, WTMJ, live from Miller Park all days. The Dodgers come to town, game one against the crew, Hall of Famer Bob Euchre on the call, all postseason long, and our coverage starts tonight at 6.35. I want to pick up where uh, I left off with Peggy Noonan's piece on what we learned about voices of reason and unreason, and I think this does dovetail into what we heard this week from Democrats. Well, it's time to get down in the gutter, and my argument is really only presentationally. Yeah, there's never been anything like Donald Trump, and I'm not, believe me, I'm not pretending that there has been. But her point is we need to look at the more subtle voices of unreason that should concern us as well. She goes on, at the very least, Senate Democrats overplayed their hand. My bias in cases of sexual abuse and assault, and it is a bias, she writes, is in favor of the woman. I give her words greater weight because I have not in my personal experience seen women lie about such allegations. And I know the reasons they have in the past kept silent. 
If you know your biases and are serious, you will try to be fair, not to overcorrect, but to maintain standards. On September 16th, the day the charges made by Christine Blasey Ford appeared in the Washington Post, I was certain that more witnesses and more information would come forward. We would see where justice lay. The great virtue of the hashtag MeToo movement is that the whole phenomenon has broken open by numbers and patterns, numbers of victims, patterns of behavior, and the deep reporting that uncovered both. In this case, great reporters tried to nail down Ms. Ford's story, but they did not succeed. The New Yorker story that followed was dramatic but unpersuasive, a hand grenade whose pin could not be pulled, The final allegation about rape train parties and spike punch was not in the least credible. Let me stop there. And it got even less credible with Michael Avenetti's presence. And most people recognize that he injecting himself into this was the biggest gift Republicans got. She goes on. It was Ms. Ford's story that was compelling, but in need of support or corroboration. It did not come. It was a woman who redeemed the situation. Susan Collins, Senator from Maine, in her remarks announcing her vote, she showed a wholly unusual respect for the American people and for the Senate itself by actually explaining her thinking. Others are, didn't, did not think kindly of this, but I go on. Under intense pressure, her remarks were not about her emotions. She weighed the evidence, in contrast to, say, Senator Cory Booker, who attempted to derail the hearings from the start and along the way compared himself to Spartacus, though Spartacus was a hero, not a malignant buffoon. Ms. Collins noted that she had voted in favor of justices nominated by George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. She considers qualifications, not party. She reviewed Brett Kavanaugh's 12-year judicial record, including more than 300 opinions, speeches, and law review articles. She met with Judge Kavanaugh for more than two hours and spoke with him again for an hour by phone with more questions. She judged him centrist in his views and well within the mainstream of judicial thought. He believes... He told her, the idea of precedent is not only a practice or tradition, but a tenet rooted in the Constitution. As to Ms. Ford's charges, since the confirmation process is not a trial, the rules are more elastic. But certain fundamentally legal principles about due process, the presumption of innocence and fairness, do bear on my thinking, and I cannot abandon them. We must always remember, she wrote, that it was when passions are most inflamed that fairness is most in jeopardy. That was Susan Collins. Peggy Noonan writes, She calls the gang rape charge an outlandish allegation with no credible evidence. At this point, it was understood the Democrats had gone too far. It is believable, said Ms. Collins, that Ms. Ford is a survivor of sexual assault and that the trauma has upended her life. But the four witnesses she named could not corroborate her account. None had any recollection of the party. Her lifelong friend said under penalty of felony that she neither remembers such an event nor even knows Brett Kavanaugh. Ms. Collins has said she's been alarmed and disturbed by those who suggest that unless Judge Kavanaugh's nomination was rejected, the Senate would somehow be condoning sexual assault. Nothing could be further from the truth. The atmosphere surrounding the nomination has been politically charged and reached fever pitch, even before the Ford and the other charges. It has been challenging to separate fact from fiction, but a decision must be made. Judge Kavanaugh's record has been called one of an exemplary public servant, judge, teacher, coach, husband, and father. Her hope is he will work 
uh, that he will work to lessen the divisions in the Supreme Court so that we have far fewer 5-4 decisions and so that public confidence in our judiciary and our highest court is restored. And so she said she would vote to confirm. It was a master class and what a friend called old-style thoroughness combined with a feeling for justice. A word on the destructive theatrics we now see gripping parts of the Democratic Party. The howling and screeching that interrupted the hearings and the voting. The people who clawed on the door of the court. The ones who chased senators through the halls and screamed at them in elevators. Who surrounded and harassed one at dinner with his wife. Who disrupted and brought an air of chaos. Who attempted to thwart democratic processes so that the people could not listen and make their judgments. Do you know how that sounded to normal people, Republicans and Democrats and unaffiliated? It sounded demonic. It didn't sound like the resistance or hashtag me too. It sounded like the shrieking in the background of an old audio tape of an exorcism. Democratic leaders should stand up to the screamers. They haven't because they're afraid of them. But things like this spread and deepen. Stand up to your base. It's leading you nowhere good. And you know it. Peggy Noonan, The Wall Street Journal. I have some additional thoughts on this. I mean, she characterizes perfectly the way Democrats overplayed their hand. They had no credibility in dealing with the Ford issue on two fronts. One, they made it clear they were never going to tolerate a Justice Kavanaugh for completely uh, invalid reasons and unjust reasons. We don't like the way he's going to rule. So they had zero credibility when a legitimate issue came up. And I agree with Peggy Noonan. You can believe something happened, and I do, to Christine Blasey Ford. I also, quite frankly, do have issues with some of Justice Kavanaugh's testimony. He clearly is not comfortable with his teen history of drinking. And I do not believe he was honest about it. But Peggy Noonan's point is a valid one. She named... Dr. Ford named four witnesses. None corroborated. Now, I actually also, though, I will make the case, I think there could have been more investigating done. I understand the Democrats would have it go on forever. I get that. But I actually, there were people that could have been spoken to. But in the end, the system works or it doesn't. And this notion that Hillary Clinton and Eric Holder are basically giving their blessing to the type of behavior that Peggy Noonan is cursing, or criticizing, not cursing per se, but criticizing. They do so at their own peril. All right, I I promised I would not forget the Kanye story, and I won't. 1143 News Radio WTMJ. WTMJ Radio presents the hometown call of Turner Hall Monday. The game, the uh, free, yes, free event will feature a massive movie screen broadcast at Turner Hall Ballroom. Game three of the NLCS between the Brewers at the Los Angeles Dodgers. And just like what you just heard. And yes, the Brewers are, look, Yelich, man, what an amazing acquisition, but they're anxious to prove they are much more than that. I don't know if you recall hearing about this. One, you're either old enough to remember it, or you heard about it. President Ronald Reagan. President Ronald Reagan had such reverence, such respect 
for the Oval Office, he refused to occupy it without having his suit coat on. Boy, that seems like a long, well, it was a long time ago. Gosh, it's 30-some years. But the whole notion seems like a lifetime away. Then you may recall, and quite frankly, I was one of them, conservative talk hosts loudly criticizing President Obama for putting his feet on the Resolute desk, disrespecting the office. Well, George W. Bush did it too. But think, that's disrespecting the Oval Office. Think of how quaint that seems now compared to what happened when Kanye West visited yesterday with President Trump. Uh, You know, broadcast live, streamed live, social media, everything else. Drops an F-bomb, made a reference to male genitalia, uh, called himself a crazy mother bleep, and rude the bull bleep the president endures. Now look, this is where I get frustrated when people say, well, Jerry, why can't you just let the Trump thing go? All right, you're a never-Trumper, but, you know, it is what it is. Let's just... Let's, come on, just get over it. Because this is horrible. And the same people who did make a big deal about President Obama's size whatever shoes up on the Resolute desk have no problem with this. I do. It's an embarrassing moment. That was reality TV. Reality TV, as someone wrote, meant reality. He held a reality, the president held a reality TV show in the Oval Office. And no one even notices anymore. It's just, uh, now I do have to say this to his credit, from what I'm reading anyway, the president actually started getting annoyed with this bizarre stream of consciousness. And, I mean, there's, perhaps that's growth, but he's the one that did this. By the way, NFL great Jim Brown was also there, but nobody really noticed because of Kanye. Trump, he's in his element, President Trump, around celebrity. That's, quite frankly, that's where he belongs. That's his world. And he dragged that world into the Oval Office yesterday. And I know conservatives aren't supposed to criticize that. Well, why not? This is not a, it's a a dark moment would be, I don't know if that's harsh, I think it is a dark moment. Where just the dignity and decorum and the respect of the office, again, others have revealed, you know, the, I, I remember some people, you know, this was years after the fact, with John John, JFK Jr., running around the Oval Office. You know, turning it into a romper room. My, my, how times, they do change. All right, coming up in just a bit, we'll find out what Steve Scafidi is working on his show live from Miller Park. At 11.52, News Radio WTMJ. 11.55, yeah, the woes of the All-Star period and the losing, all of that long gone, losing streak and... The Josh Hader controversy, all of that well in the rearview mirror as the Brewers are headed to the NLCS. By the way, uh, quickly, 
the back in positive territory. A few moments ago, the Dow had actually the rally stalled altogether, and it was underwater, but it's uh, up 25 points. But it had been up much more than that. It's been in a pretty steady slide since mid-morning. That's where it is right now. Just a quick word on this. This is a head-scratcher. There is a Democratic group. It's completely new to Wisconsin. Hasn't been on anyone else's radar screen. It plans to spend $1 million, says this Democratic group, on state Senate races that it has no chance of winning. Heavily, heavily Republican districts that no one else, you know, on the, on the left side of the aisle would even think for a second the group is forward majority. Going after Senate Majority Leader Scott Fitzgerald, he won his last election with 63% of the vote. Other, other just completely ridiculously safe targets. Senator Devin Lemahue of Oostburg, Jerry Prochowski of Marathon, Van Wangard, Racine. Uh, that's 60% or more. Devin Lemahue. I feel pretty good. There are some Democrats, you think of some of the tight races up in my part of the state where I live. The first Senate district race, Caleb Frostman, sort of the incumbent. I mean, he's the incumbent after the special election. But he would love to get a piece of that. I have no idea what they're thinking. No, even Democrats, what are they doing? They can't, they're not going to win any of these races. A million bucks. To what? Narrow the margin a little bit when you've got three key races that they actually have a chance of winning. It is their money, not mine. But man, that is really hard to explain. It is 11.57. Steve Scafidi is live at Miller Park. What are you going to be talking about from out there, Steve? 